Today's March 9th. There you go. We're live. <laughs> I did that live. That's fine. Today's March 9th, episode 34. That is Welcome correct. Movie Tuesday. It's Movie Tuesday. And today we will be discussing the 2012 Best Picture winner. 2011? I don't know. The Artist, which we saw a couple weeks ago. Uh, it won Best Film and Best Director. Oh, no, that was at the New York Films Critics Circle. But it did win the Oscar, I believe, for Best it was Picture. Nominated, it was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and won five. Uh, and we saw it. And what was what? What did you say the second it was over? I don't remember. It's been a while. I think you said <laughs> that was that was pointless, or something like that. Yeah. Well, the the uh, no the uh, no. I it was it was uh, it was okay. It was good. But uh, actually, uh, when I was going through this, yeah, this is just like uh, uh, Valentino. Uh, what mm -hmm. was his name? Rudolph uh, Valentino. Rudolph Valentino. It was just like him. He he couldn't make the transition uh, from silent films to talkies, but it was well done. It was very well done. It was a French film. It was it was made in uh, France, uh, and um, and uh, yeah, uh, it, it it won Best Picture in the Academy Awards, uh, Best Director, uh, the Best Actor of I don't know if I can pronounce his name Jean Dujardin, uh, but. Uh, Making him the first French actor ever to win in this in, this, in that category, in Academy Awards. That's awesome. Which is good. Yeah, it was really good. And I think I think uh, the the uh, actors were good. Uh, the female lead, she was a good. I think it was all good. It was well done. But what did you what did you say about it? it says, oh yeah, uh, the artist would win. I mean, it didn't stand out to me. I like, yeah, that was good. That was fine. That was a nice story. But uh, you said, yeah, one, because it was about Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood <laughs> loves Hollywood. When it comes yeah. to giving an award, they're going to give an award about the movie about Hollywood. Right, right. <laughs> and they think that, oh, that's so cool, because it's about what we do. Yeah. Because they understand it. Yeah, that's what you said. When you do something about you know, your area of expertise in the Academy, our members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences... And the movie is about making movies. You're like, hey, I know that. I'm familiar with that. That makes sense to me. It's like if you showed Ozzy Smith a movie about baseball. He'd probably like it more than a movie. He'd probably like it more than The Artist. I bet you Ozzy Smith <laughs> likes The Natural more than The Artist. Probably so. Because he true. understands baseball. That's right. The, or The History of Baseball. Talking about the history of uh, when Babe Ruth or or uh, uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson, yeah, Field of Dreams, because that's Field uh, of Dreams. that's really happened. Well, yeah, Shoeless well, Joe Jackson didn't emerge as a ghost from the cornfield, but no. Shoeless Joe Jackson was a real guy. Yeah, or a movie about Babe Ruth, or a movie a movie about uh, Honus Wagner or something. Uh, Ozzy would love that, you know. And and if and if the Academy was made up of all baseball players. They vote for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Very, very true. Yeah, the but, motion, motion Picture Academy of Baseball Players. Their yeah. favorite movies would be Field of Dreams, The Natural, Eight Men Out, maybe even yeah. The Sandlot. <laughs> I, it takes them back when they were kids. I'm sure they played Sandlot ball. Uh-huh. Yeah, they all did. I mean, uh, Yogi Berra was saying, yeah, he would play stickball in the streets, uh, streets in New York City all the time when he was a kid. But he's from St. Louis. Or from St. Louis, I mean. In the street, him and his brothers mm -hmm. would play stickball all the time. Yeah. And uh, actually, if there was a movie about Yogi Berra, uh, I think if the uh, Academy of, War, uh, the Academy of uh, Baseball Players, they'd vote for that movie. That'd be great. It's interesting, though, we talked about Yogi Berra on a previous episode. Episode 8, actually, because that's Yogi Berra's number. Yep. I'm not sure. I, I, you can make a movie out of anything. But Yogi, for all of his famous sayings, 
and all of the incredibly dramatic situations that he found himself in, he didn't really seem like a high drama type of guy. That's true. That's probably why he lived so long. Even keel. Yep. That's just the way it is. It ain't over till it's over. That's why he was a good catcher and a good manager. That's right. He was he kept his head in the game. That's right. He wasn't emotional. He didn't get he didn't uh it wasn't led away by emotion or what was happening. He he kept he kept a, a steady hand on the on the keel. Yep. Yep. So shall we watch the trailer of the artist before we Yeah, let's do. Okay. Let's do that then. This is the trailer. I'll pull us up as well. For the artist. There you have it. I forgot about the dog. The dog was the star of the show. The dog was great. The dog saved his life. The dog, it was Eddie. Uggie. <laughs> his name was Uggie. But it reminds me of Eddie from Frasier. And I'm a little bit upset. Uh, let's take a look here at the card. Jean Dujardin played George Valentin. Berenice Bejo played Pepe Miller. And James Cromwell played Clifton. Uh, I really think it should say Jean Dujardin, Berenice Bejo, and Uggie the Dog. <laughs> Those should be the three above the title here in the credits. Do you see should what I'm talking Uggie. about? Uggie's yeah. not even listed. Uggie, I mean, James Cromwell was the third most important person. That was George Valentin's driver who was loyal to him. But Uggie was more important than James Cromwell. Uggie should have gotten the credit. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uggie was awesome. Go, Uggie. See, now that's not right. That's, that's, that's those French people are discriminating against dogs. Yeah, French people hate dogs. Why do French people hate dogs so much? I don't know. I don't know. 
But anyway, it should be Jean Desjardins, Berenice Peugeot, <laughs> and Aggie the dog. <laughs> and I, I will, look, go back to that. Go okay. back to that. Over on the right, notice how the uh, over on the right, uh, the artist and there's there's uh, Jean Berenice and Uggy in yep. the middle there. See it? Uggy, there he is. There he is, right there. Every that part. Everybody loved Uggy. I think Uggy was a hit amongst everyone who saw that movie. So yes, there was a dog. The dog was great. Uh, and he he was in about every every. He was in as many scenes as the leads. Mm-hmm. Now, oh, we forgot to also mention it's a silent film, more or less. So in 2012, a silent film won Best Picture. That's kind of cool when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And Well, the, the trailer did talk about the story, how you had the encounter, then you had the fall, then, and then you had the comeback. And, and uh, so... Uh, you know, about spoiler alerts, I don't, that never bothered me. If I hear the ending, I want to see how they did it, you know, because it's, it's an artist, it's an art form, you mm -hmm. know, like, oh, you know, the, uh, the Mona Lisa is about a woman that doesn't really, you know, that has kind of a smile, you know, and there's a, there's a river behind him. Well, that's not a spoiler alert. You want to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Same for a movie. So for those watching, the trailer did sort of sum this up. But, of course, if they're listening to the podcast, all they heard was just two minutes of music. The, tra oh, uh, yeah. the movie is about uh, established actor George Valentin, played by Jean Dujardin. And he's a star of the silent films. He's a swashbuckling. He has all these hits. And after one of his film premieres where he's on top of the world, he bumps into Pepe Miller, a young ingenue who's trying to make her way in the world as an actress. They sort of hit it off, and uh, they end up dancing in a scene together. Pepe Miller goes to his dressing room, and he says, you know, if you want to be special, you got to be different. And he paints a beauty spot on her, uh, above her mouth, below her nose, whatever you call that thing, that flap of skin. On her and, cheek. On her yeah. cheek. But, like, it's above her lip. Oh, is it on her cheek? I thought it was, like, yeah, it was right, where her, your mustache goes. Right there where that, the upper lip to the cheek right in there. Yeah, and so she ends up starring in a movie called Beauty Spot, which is one of the first talkies. George Valentin says no one's going to like these talkies, sort of like Rudolph Valentino. He makes his own film with all of his money. He spends all of his capital called Tears of Love. And so Tears of Love actually ends up premiering opposite of beauty spot peppy miller's talkie and it bombs horribly that's compounded with the stock market crash of 1929 and all of a sudden george valentin is broke he has to sell all of his possessions he sits around in a dumpy apartment drinking booze all day as peppy miller starts her meteoric rise through the ranks in hollywood becomes a premier actress in hollywood now, turns out, as George Valentin is sort of declining and Peppy Miller's ascending, she always has a soft spot for him. And she's always trying to look out for him. When he auctions off all of his goods, it's Peppy Miller that buys all of them, just so that he has more money to spend. And she tries to, uh, you know, bring him back into the fold. And he discovers that it's her that's been his benefactor all these years, and he's livid. He goes and he's about to commit suicide, but the dog stops him because the dog is the real hero of this film. And then, <laughs> and then he and Peppy Miller, Peppy Miller comes up with a plan. They always enjoy dancing together. Well, he could do a sound film, a non-silent film, if they did a big tap number. So the movie concludes with this great tap number filmed in the same place where Cary, not Cary Grant, who's the guy that did Singing in the Rain? Uh, Gene, no. Gene Kelly and Ginger. Gene Kelly. That's it. Gene Kelly and he would he would dance with Ginger Rogers. Yes. So it was it was in that is in that style and they were very good. They yes. Were excellent. So they filmed that in the same sound stage where they filmed Singing in the Rain. And apparently they practiced for months to nail that scene. 
And so instead of doing uh, where George Valentin had to talk, he does say one line at the very end. And you can see that he has got a thick French accent. And it's like, that's probably why he couldn't make it into talkies. Yeah. Yeah, and I heard Valentin, Valentino, uh, the real uh, Rudolph Valentino. He never could transition to the talkies because he didn't have a low voice. Hey, really high voice like that, you know? Like, and like they, Mike Tyson? Yeah, I guess so. And back then, uh, it was all about appearances, you mm -hmm. know. And so, uh, so it, it didn't trend. That's what I heard. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. But it, it was the movie was well done. Yeah, when he tried to commit suicide, there was a fire and Uggy the dog. Oh, uh, Uggy the dog tried to pull him away. He saw what he was doing. The dog saw what he was doing. He tried to pull him away and stop. No, no, no. You know, kind of like. And then he runs outside, starts barking at a policeman. And brings the policeman there uh, in time to save his life. And uh, Uggy's the hero. Uggy saved his life twice, too. Because remember, that was, he tears up all of his films, and then he goes to live with Peppy Miller after he burns his films. And then he tries to shoot himself. It's really kind of a dark movie for being sort of lighthearted, silent film. Yeah. And... Uh, I think that it's a, a theme of it is a lot like Greek tragedies. His pride prevented him from embracing the future, and that caused his descent. Things got worse and worse and worse. I'm sure sitting around drinking booze alone doesn't help you solve your problems. That's uh, another lesson of the movie. But having a dog might just save your life. That's another lesson. <laughs> Maybe that's a lesson. And if someone uh, reaches out a helping hand, don't be too proud to, to take it. Because that might save your life as well. Those are the, some of the themes I got from the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, those are good. And that's pretty much what I got from it. Like uh, that uh, everyone is going to have ups and downs. And so uh, where there's a down, there could be an up right around the corner. Mm-hmm. So... And, there, and also, we need each other to help each other. Well, he helped her, and then she turned around and tried to help him. Mm -hmm. So there's, and Uggy the dog helped him. Yeah, Uggy the dog really helped him. Uggy yeah. the dog was the best part of that movie. It was great. <laughs> and they, and they, like, Uggy, uh, Uggy didn't just do it. He did it in such a way, it was kind of like acting. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how they got that dog to do that, but the, <laughs> the dog was great. I got a, I get a feeling the dog was pretty smart. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, he had the he had the the thing about where he'd he'd go bang, and uh, and the dog would just fall down mm -hmm. like he's dead, and so that was that was a a, a shtick that they had throughout the movie. Anyway, the um, yeah, it, it was a good lesson uh, of first of all going from. Uh, the silent films to the talkies, that that was kind of a classic, and I think the Academy liked the history. Uh, that I don't think anyone's made a movie about that transition to the to the talkies and how difficult it was, and how there was brand new. Yeah, and I I think they're seeing that transition even today, from the movie theater to the to the uh, uh, streaming uh, to online streaming uh, services. You or buying it, or straight out, or renting a movie. Uh, so we're seeing that transition now. And I think it's a lesson, lesson for the people today saying, hey, you know, the industry's changing again. Mm -hmm. So it changed back then, and look what happened. Well, the same things are happening today. And you need to change with it. Yeah, I think also, you know, he said no one will ever like talking pictures. That's just a bunch of, you know, he dismissed it out of hand. It reminds me a little bit of PewDiePie, the biggest creator on YouTube, the platform that we're currently broadcasting to. Let me make sure the stream is up. It sure is. Uh, he says something mildly controversial, and the Wall Street Journal goes on a warpath and says, this guy needs to, YouTube should shut this guy down. And the reason why is because one guy in his bedroom in England, from he's a Swedish guy, but he lives in England, has more subscribers, more views, and more revenue than a 100-year-old newspaper. And why is he able to do that? Because he embraced the technology before the Wall Street Journal did. 
he was the one that sort of built an empire on the talkies while Wall Street Journal still stuck in the silent film era. And they say, no, no, he's bad. We're good. And it's like, well, maybe. Or, but he, if you hesitate, you'll find yourself left behind, sort of like George Valentin did. Yep. Yep. And, uh, well, the same thing uh, with the Internet. Uh, the, uh, I think it was Xerox. Uh, that was the graphical user interface. Okay. So Xerox had developed a graphical user interface for uh, x86 systems. It was an operating system that ran with a mouse and you could click on files and they would open. Now, prior to this, everything was command line. It was DOS, it was Unix. You would have to say, you know, run program Microsoft Word and, you know, navigate your file structure via change direct CD space, this or that, or, you know, LS, whatever, depending on whether you're using a Unix or DOS-based system. And Xerox had developed a graphical user interface. But for their purposes, they didn't need it. So they basically gave it away to Steve Jobs. And that's what became the Mac OS. And then Bill Gates saw it and said, I'm just going to do this too, Windows. So Xerox is not one of the most powerful companies in the world now, but Microsoft <laughs> and Apple are. And it's built a lot uh, in large part on the backs of Xerox's hard work. Even before that, I heard, I don't know if this story is true or not. I shouldn't be saying these things, but I, I've heard this. And I think it's true. Back in the 40s, uh, when computers, uh, you know, like the, the big computers in the rooms, uh, the president of IBM said that no one uh, will own a computer other than just a few very large corporations. And, uh, of course, that's not true. So the, 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 uh, the microprocessors came out and, and they downsized, downsized to where everyone has one. Mm -hmm. We have one in our phone now. Yeah. Pretty much everyone has one. So it's not that it... Uh, uh, yeah, at that point in time, that's true, but things change. It's, One thing about everything, everything changes. It's like more ubiquitous than the telephone. I, I mean, I guess we're sort of getting off topic of the artist, but he, he, the, he existed in a time where you had a mainframe computers and teletype systems. And it's like, well, we'll just build 10 huge mainframe computers and we'll lease out access to this. That was their business model at the time. Yeah, And then the business model moved to, what if we sold companies workstations? And they had workstations in their company. Then the internet comes out, and it's like, we need to put a computer in every home. And then technology advances, and it's like, yeah, it's nice to sell one computer per family, but you know what would be even more nice? To make a laptop computer and make it so that all mom, dad, and the kids all need a laptop. They say, oh, it's nice that they all have a laptop, but they get a laptop, they keep it for five or six years. You know what we need to do? We need to put a computer in their pocket that they carry around with them everywhere that makes <laughs> phone calls that gets obsoleted in a couple years. So instead of buying one family computer and having it for 10 years, instead of buying everyone in the family a laptop and they have it for five years, everyone in the family has a phone and it only lasts for two years. And it's like, that's brilliant. You sort of, you get them to... So not only does everyone have a laptop, I have a laptop and a phone and a workstation. I have the trifecta. Yeah, I do too. But the thing of it is, is that the phone becomes personal. And uh, of course, we're tied to our workstation because we use it all the time. Mm -hmm. But the phone, it becomes personal because of Facebook and Twitter. You can talk to people. So the social connection is there. Uh, the point is, when things change, uh, it... it when change happens, change will be connected with everything around you. Uh, so you think of just, oh, the talkies. Well, why, why did they go from the silent film to the talkies? Well, that's just one part of it. The other part of it is the talkies is more personal. You get more of a person's personality mm -hmm. when you hear them actually talk. 
than when you just see them. Instead of reading on reading uh, the script, when you hear them say it, it's more personal. So th there's more things going on. Uh, and also when you have music, the music can, can create moods within the actual uh, movie because uh, it's not just music now. It's like you can hear the cars driving by or you can hear the tap dancing or you can actually hear what's happening. It sound design. It, it, yeah, becomes more personal. So yeah, that's what I mean. Well, uh, so that when it changes, it's not just that one thing that changes; it's everything around it. Mm -hmm. Well, Pepe Miller does that interview in George Valentine's at the next table. If you remember, she's saying, you know, everyone's going to love these talkies more. You know, the silent films are just a bunch of mugging for two hours, and you ha you have to do that to sell a silent film because you're not saying anything. You have to convey your emotions with your face and your body. But it is true, if you watch a silent film, there is a whole lot of mugging. You go, you know, that's, that's how you have to convey, because you're not using dialogue to move, to express the feelings of the people on screen. And the interesting thing to me is I think that George Valentine, his assessment, these talkies are just a gimmick. They're not going to last. He was dead wrong, obviously. But... The artist won Best Picture because it went back 80 years to a form of filmmaking that was 80 years old that had not been resurrected for 80 years. And it said there was an artistic aesthetic that existed in silence films that doesn't exist in the talkies. And what if we made a film that recaptured that aesthetic? Because people flocked to the movie theater during the silent film era. And the thing is, those films were good. It's just when you add something uh, that doesn't necessarily make the film with the talking better, but it's difficult to go back once you introduce something new. It's like if you watch TV on a 19-inch cathode ray zenith. You know, that would have been 500 bucks in 1982 or more. And it would have weighed 30 pounds and it would have been tiny. But that's all that the families had, you know? Just one cathode ray, 19-inch zenith, or 27-inch if your family was wealthy. I have two 27-inch monitors in front of me now. And the thing is, you're not going to have that in your living room. You're going to buy a flat screen because you can go to Walmart and get, but the thing is, there's families from 1982 to 1997 that watch TV on a cathode ray tube in low definition, and they had meaningful moments, even though that technology sucks compared to the technology of today. When I was in my, when I was a kid, we watched black and white TV. Black and white TV was awesome. It was great, and uh, and they would do all kinds of things. You could, like you would put a a film on the glass, they kind of made it kind of colored a little bit. Uh, and so they would call it color, color TV. It wasn't color TV. <laughs> it was kind of like a, it was a film that you put on the, on the glass, uh, on, on outside, physically put it on, on your TV. And, but it was enjoyable. We saw, the, we saw, uh, remember we'd always watch Gunsmoke in black and white. And mm -hmm. uh, it was great. It was very, very enjoyable. Why? Because before that, in the 30s and 40s, all they had was radio. And then they could actually see it on in your house, in your house right there. That's like the same thing as a phone in your pocket. It becomes more and more personal. Mm -hmm. okay? And so the talkies became more personal because you had the, had the voice. Now, since this is, I mean, it sort of devolved from a conversation about the artist to a conversation about how technology moves forward. But that's what good movies do. They make you think. Now, like you said, we're seeing this transition from in the theaters to in the home. And being an introvert that doesn't like crowds, I'm all for it. <laughs> you know, I don't... The Alamo... I have a friend that works at the Alamo. He loves movies. I mean, God bless his soul. But... I don't want someone eating a whole pizza next to me while I'm trying to watch a movie. It's weird. Uh, 
Even someone disgustingly munching down popcorn, you can hear their disgusting mouth noises. You're trying to pay attention to the movie, and you just, they're going hog wild. Especially when the movie's crowded, it makes it much worse for me. And the fact that you could just pay money and see it on your TV at home, and, like we were talking about, everybody has pretty darn good setups these days. If I want to watch a movie, the sound is pretty good, the picture's pretty good. It's not movie theater quality, but it's pretty good. So it's. I would rather watch it at home. What about you? Well, for that, for not that much money, if you knew what you were doing, you could get movie quality viewing and, and uh, video and audio at home. Because mm-hmm. uh, you could get, if you wanted to spend the money, you could have the same experience at home. And uh, yeah, I kind of enjoyed at home too, because uh, I will uh, watch. I'll watch movies on my laptop. I'll, uh, if I want to go to want to go to bed, I want to relax. I'll watch a Hallmark movie on my laptop. You know. See, that's interesting to me because I have my workstation and my laptop. But if I watch a movie, I want it to be on my TV because that's the biggest screen. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't watch movies here at my workstation where I do the podcast and create media. I don't watch it on my laptop. I'll do writing on my laptop, emails, but not media consumption. For me, it's sort of like I haven't graduated. And I know that Laura, my younger sister, she watches stuff on her phone. Yeah. And that's bizarre to me. Like, I don't want to watch a movie on my phone unless I'm on a plane. I don't want to do that, you know? It's I, It's fascinating to me what you come to... What you what you normalize? I think for me that the act of watching a movie, you do it on a couch, and you sit there and you watch the movie on a big screen. And if I don't like the movie, I'll scroll my phone the whole time. <laughs> if the movie's boring, but I don't watch movies on my phone. And I think that's one problem creating media. Is I imagine it being consumed as I consume it. It's true. So and for, everybody is different. For a podcast, I think I have a better handle on that than even internet video. Because I rarely watch YouTube on my phone. I'll watch YouTube on my laptop or on my computer or even on, you know, the big screen, the television in my living room. Well, those three are all screens that are landscape most people watch youtube on their phone now for a podcast i only listen to podcasts on my phone and i think that most people listen to podcasts on their phone most people don't sit down at a computer and be like i'm gonna pull up a po-. maybe they listen to podcasts while they work i don't know i feel like podcasts is a phone thing too everything is a phone thing now that's the fascinating thing we need we need computers like workstations to create media but what you're creating media for is the phone Well, that's it's that's true. Uh, it's surprising how many people do use their phone because we're again we're getting off of the artist. But I know uh, with I I create videos uh, to teach, mm-hmm. and back when I had the analytics, uh, they don't tell me all the analytics now. But back when I had them, I had a lot of lot of viewers from uh, remote devices. Yeah. So so they were. They were watching my lectures and learning on the phone. Yeah, it's fascinating because you wouldn't think someone would do that. I I wouldn't. I want to see it on a on my screen. Mm-hmm. Am I am I home right here? Now I I watch the laptop. I watch the movies on the laptop because I have it right on my lap. the 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 laptop is right in front of me. I put the earphones in, and it's just me in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know. There's nobody around. There's nobody talking. It's just me in the movie. Do you use headphones? Yeah. So well, you have the, the ear, earbuds. Yeah. So you have the sound from the movie piped right into your ears. I have done that. Uh, typically when I'm traveling or something. Oh, and it is nice. You know, you're in a hotel room. They have a TV, and it's like, no, I want to watch a movie. But the TV is not a smart TV, so you watch the movie on your laptop. Uh, and it is nice. I just. I guess it's your routines, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Like, well, the the silent films were before my era. I didn't. I never watched a silent film in the movie theater. But I can imagine going into a movie theater and seeing a silent film, and because uh, they had nothing else. Yeah. And I could, I can see that it was really big. <clears throat> so what happens is, is that the uh, the actors back then say, "Hey, I'm really big," because that's all there is. Uh, then the talkies came in. He says, I'm really big and I'm not going to go down. He says, wait a minute, back up <laughs> and look what's happening. And so uh, a lot of times, uh, see, what's, what's a saying? Uh, uh, the bright lights of the uh, billboards will blind you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you don't, you don't see what's coming down the pike because uh, you're blinded by all the fame and recognition. So be very careful uh, when you have success, uh, because sometimes that success can blind you to failure right around the corner if you don't change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what this uh, movie was about. Uh, partially the history uh, and partially some some really good lessons to be learned. And I think a lesson to be learned even today with the uh, entertainment industry, that uh, the more you engage people, Maybe another lesson from this is the more you engage people, the more personal it is from a computer in a room to a computer in your house to a computer on your lap to a computer in your pocket, uh, then uh, people are going to do that. Okay, So more personal, more personal, the more valuable it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So what about movies? Well, it's silent and then it's talkies and now it's in your home. Uh, but maybe the next one, the more personal it is, when you engage the listener in the action, they are part of the action, then you're going to have another industry. Like streaming. Like gaming. Yeah. Why is gaming? Uh, I wonder, I wonder, David, how big is gaming compared to watching movies? As far as uh, the uh, the market cap, let's take a look at that. I believe it's bigger. I think that's a good point. And, and I think the reason is because gaming they are part of the action. Like, what if you were part of that movie? What if you were out there dancing with them <laughs> at the end? Okay, the more you engage the audience, uh, the the more audience you're going to have. And even if they're not doing it and they watch it, then they can do it. I remember like, uh, why do people watch sports like like baseball and soccer and football and hockey? Because it's exciting. But what if you could play it with them? Yeah. And that and that's what gaming does. You can play it. You can play it with them. Maybe not in that tournament, but you can get online and play it at the same time they're playing. And some of those people have been playing with you. Okay, I don't... This is 2016. So, and it's IFPI, the Motion Picture Association, Digital Entertainment Group, and New Zoo. This is where this was. So this this graphic over here on the right. Music, film, games, whoa. Music, $16 billion a year industry. Digital, uh, uh, film, of $49 billion. So gaming is twice as big as films. Games wow, are 101 billion. Now, mobile console PC. I bet that mobile's going to start big, growing too. Oh yeah. So, let's take a look at this graphic. And so we we have to trust that these graphics I pulled down from Google Images are. We take it with a grain of salt. It's you know, but if it was 101 billion in 2016, here's 2018, 19, and 20. And it's going to be close to 180. It has 80% growth in four years. And that's an 80% growth of a $100 billion industry. So it's $180 billion. That's, <laughs> that's not small potatoes. Wow. Fascinating, huh? So is gaming yep. the new talkies? <laughs> is gaming the new talkies? Uh, and because we just said uh, the talkies going from silent film to talkies, you engaged 
the viewer, the audience in a more personal manner. And then going from talkies to gaming, you engage the audience in a much more personal manner because they're part of the action. The, Very interesting. The interesting thing about gaming too is you can have a career as a digital artist, as a programmer, as a marketing executive for these games, as a game designer. You can be involved in the creation of these games. And they say, this game is out and it's for sale. It's 50 bucks and people buy the game and that's revenue. But unlike the movies, you cannot build a career. Well, I guess you could be a critic, but you can't say, I'm going to film myself watching this movie and make $100 million. But Ninja can film himself playing video games and stream it and make $100 million. It's fascinating to me. You can't, you can't film yourself listening to music and make a million dollars. But you can film yourself playing video games and make a billion dollars. Why? Because when you watch them do it, you could do it too. Yes, but I also feel like when someone says, why would anyone watch anyone play video games? It's like saying, why would anyone want to hear anyone talk in the movies? You just, you don't understand that it's going to be as ubiquitous as ever. Why would anyone want to watch someone watch, play a video game? Why would anyone want to watch football on TV? Mm -hmm. They're going to do it because they're engaged. It's very, yeah. Well, I, like uh, to me, uh, also there's maybe it's a maybe it's a leap, but it's also a connection back to we were talking about logic, mm -hmm. uh, logic and rhetoric, uh, and also fallacies. One of the biggest fallacies is a fallacy of appeal to emotion, because humans are emotional; they will make decisions based on emotion. If they enjoy it, their entertainment, they're going to spend money on it, and it's going to be a big business. And why do people, why do kids and, and young people play games? Because it's exciting. It's fun. And uh, I, I like watching it too. It's like watching sports almost. When you watch a competitive yeah. video game. It's exciting. You engage the audience because it's exciting. Let's see here. I want to show something. I can, I can figure it out. Let's go. So, like we said... Um, well, there's a lot of, uh, I'm reading Wiki Wikipedia mm -hmm. while you're pulling that stuff up. And it won, it won, uh, it says it's the first it was also the first French produced film to win Best Picture. And it was the first mainly silent film to win uh, the 1927s since, uh, since the 1927s uh, Wings won the first Academy Awards in 1929. Oh, wow. Only one silent film won Best Picture? The, the Academy Awards started in 1929? I guess so. In 1927, The Wings did. It was also the first film presented in the four to three aspect ratio to win since 1953, From Here to Eternity. Additionally, it was the first black and white film to win since 1993's Schindler's List. Though the latter contained limited color sequences, it was the first 100% black and white film to win since 1960's The Apartment. So, but the interesting part was the first mainly silent film to win since 1927's Wings won at the first Academy Awards in 1929. Wow. So it was 80 or 70 some odd years. Wow. So I no. just want to, I just want to make this point, uh, you know, Silent films, they were good. When that's all you have, they were good. And just because they fell out of favor, in favor of the talkies, 
doesn't mean that they weren't good. The interesting thing I think about the artist, what I like about it a lot, is a lot of times things progress and that methodology gets left by the wayside. Like, we're not going to make a silent film. We're going to make a talkie. And it was 70 some odd years before someone made a silent film that won Best Picture again because everyone was making talkies. But that doesn't mean that silent films aren't good. I remember when I first got a streaming music service, I had Rhapsody. I have Spotify now. But I remember I started listening to, I'm going to pull this up now, Orson Welles. And, you know, they have the War of the Worlds, but they have the vintage radio shows. Suspense, Philhamel College, Magnificent Barastro, The Shadow, Death Triangle, Circle of Deaths. They were radio plays that were like suspense TV episodes. And, you know, Orson Welles went on to make Citizen Kane, which is widely considered one of the greatest films ever made. But these radio plays, they're better than some of the crap you see on TV. So in the <laughs> 1930s, when he's doing episodes of The Shadow, uh, Three Ghosts, Temple's Bell of Bel Naban, you know, Death House Rescue, if you listen to these, if you sit down and listen to them, they're 30 minutes long, they're superior to an, episode, to an episode of Miami Vice that aired in the 80s, to an episode of Chicago Med or Chicago Fire. They're more suspenseful than that. And here we are, nearly 100 years later, and 90 years ago, this guy was creating stuff, albeit in a different format, that was better. That's um, good stuff. I would drive home from work, and always they don't have it anymore. I turn on the radio, turn on AM radio, uh, because it was the oh I forgot the name of the program. K E Z W though is that the one that you would listen to? It, it would be it would be a a, a uh, was it Jack Benny? Oh no no no. Oh. Uh, I would I would listen to uh, an actual story. Mm -hmm. it'd, be the, it'd be the old film. I can't remember the name of the of the radio show. It was it was it, it was the same time I drive home every evening, and it would say, "Okay, the old time radio show," and here's and they'd have Fibber McGee and Molly, or and it would have the Jack Benny show, mm -hmm. but they would have other radio shows that you would listen to, and I would listen to these old shows on the way home, and a lot of them were dramas, and and a storyline kind of like The Shadow, you know. Mm -hmm. And I listened to it, and I'd get home and have to sit in the car to hear the ending. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were excellent. You know, they were very, very good. And they were, they were, they were like twenty minutes, fifteen, twenty minutes. You know, they were long. Mm -hmm. But the, but you're right, David. They were good. Even the the uh, radio music hour. That's what it was. Something like that. And uh, they were good. They were very fun to listen to on the radio. And I'm sure if you watch Wings or Modern Times. Uh, Modern Times is Charlie Chaplin's, they say, one of his best movies. And that came out in, wow, 1936. So that might be sort of like George Valentin's Tears of Love. You know, for 10 mm -hmm. years the talkies had been out, but Charlie Chaplin said, no, I'm going to make a big budget movie. It's still considered a great movie, but it's a... Uh, uh, silent film. Oh, I've hold on. <laughs> it's a silent film from 1936. And I mean, that's kind of ballsy. Ten years after the talkies had been around to say, I'm going to make a big budget silent film. It's kind of ballsy in 2012 to say, I'm going to make a silent film. Yeah. And then and I think that people respected the moxie. Like you said, you liked One Night in Miami better than The Artist because it felt more important. And I do think as a piece of cultural history or, you know, a way for the general public to contextualize that period of time, yes. But to show, I, I feel like, you know, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, symphonies get together and record their pieces today, and they have for the last hundreds of years. People don't really get together and make silent films anymore. 
it's fascinating that a lot of the the techniques and the the methodologies if they're not exercised they'll be lost people won't realize how those things were done how you could elicit that emotion because it's not in favor and that's it's kind of sad but it's also that's life you know well it's off subject but the pandemic and in covid has been uh, devastating some of the native american uh, reservations uh they're losing the elders and they're losing the language mm-hmm. that's really really sad because in that language is a culture and that culture is valuable to not only not only the tribe not only the reservation not only the people of that of that tribe but it's important to our society uh because a society is only valuable when it has when it's broad when you have what the broader the society uh then all the good from all the society will come together and no one person or no one society can be all good uh that you're going to you can get a better good by having more people uh maybe that's why america's great anyway that's beside the point uh but anyway the the again we're talking about silent films going to talkies uh going to uh, more streaming media. Yeah, well, I mean, I think losing a Native American languages is fascinating because once they're gone, they're not coming back. That's right. It's like the dodo bird, where'd it mm-hmm. go? And uh, from what I understand, they were beautiful. They mm-hmm. were beautiful birds. Well, I do feel like sense. there's an opportunity in the modern era to get tape, you know, to get uh, recordings of these speakers and to get hours and hours of recordings and to sort of have a computer sort of parse through it and say, oh, these are the grammar rules. But I did hear, I forget, it was a news report about, or maybe it was that great courses that we saw when I was taught, I showed you the great courses about Native American languages. And there's people and like, oh, they're native speakers. And you go and you, uh, you know, you analyze what they're doing and they're using 40% of the language that would have been used 150 years ago. So it's sort of like a pidgin dialect almost, you know, like pidgin English, they call it. When you're a native and then, you know, the English conquistadors, for lack of a better word, come and you have to trade with them and you have your, you know, your Algonquin or whatever. And you're like, well, I want to, you know, barter with these people. You learn a very limited English that's transactional. That's sort of... So you're like, oh, yeah, that person speaks this language. And they're like, well, we do have record that this language is much more robust than what these people that are the last native speakers are speaking today. And it's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's kind of sad because we, we will not know uh, the way our language uh, was spoken 200 years ago because all the native speakers uh, that are now, uh, like you say, are the more modern uh, speaking to in order to the more modern speakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really kind of sad because even even when I go home, uh, some of my relatives, they'll they'll say things in Cherokee and I go, oh, so that's how that's said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Tahlequah, you know, you know, you know, the city in, in Oklahoma, Tahlequah, right? That's the yeah. capital. Uh, well, you know, that's not how they say it. It's Tahlequah. Mm-hmm. You know, and just just the way they say that, it's just it's not Tahlequah. It's boring. It's Tahlequah. And I go, oh, can you imagine talking in the sing-songy? Uh, it's just it's just exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, of course, of course, I'm not a speaker and and uh, my dad was not a speaker. Sequoia, sons of Sequoia. But uh, his his mother was and she would she would have words and my dad would have words. Uh, but he never taught me. Uh, he knew all the swear but, words, right? <laughs> he says, "No, you don't want to learn it because all I all I remember is all the all the all the swear words in Cherokee." <laughs> and he was saying it one time in the store, in the shopping cart. It's sort of this is a little bit off topic, but I read an article about how what you do affects your language as well. Sort of like the language of filmmaking in the silent era. Mm-hmm. Someone who is very expressive in their face is more valuable than someone who has a very smooth speaking voice. 
So I was reading an article in the New York Times about anosmia, that's the loss of smell, because it's become a huge thing with COVID, it becomes a symptom. Well, they were talking about, this was just an aside, but sommeliers, if you read writings of sommeliers, that's people that professionally evaluate wines for a living. Uh-huh. And then you take that and you do machine processing of writings of people that review beer for a living. People that review beer will use up to 20 adjectives for the word bitter. And sommeliers won't. Those words don't appear in their writing. Because sommeliers are drinking very good wines, and very good wines are not supposed to be bitter. Beer connoisseurs are drinking very good beers, and a quality of very good beers is that they are bitter. So as a result, the vocabulary changes just by virtue of what people are doing. It's sort of like how the Eskimos have a hundred words for snow. Snow. I don't know if that's true, but I heard that when I was a kid. <laughs> it's probably close to that, you know. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's fascinating it though. It's a little fascinating to me. And and a Hawaiian may not have only one word for snow. Or none, because they've never or seen none. snow. They've never seen snow. If you've never seen it, why would you have a word for it? Should I see if there's a word for snow in Hawaiian? <laughs> okay. Let's look. I'm. Uh, what's the word for snow in Hawaiian? How? You wonder if a Hawaiian that traveled to the mainland invented that name. Interesting. I've been to Hawaii. I like Hawaii. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's nice. It's beautiful. It's, it's our world is beautiful. Yes. And every part of the world has a beauty beauty to it, you know. But the most beautiful so, parts of America are Hawaii and Colorado. You know what the most beautiful parts of the world are? What? Home. Yeah, I like home. <laughs> You're home because that's where you are. The last trip I took before COVID was to La Jolla, just outside of San Diego. That's a beautiful place. Yeah. It's okay. well, California. Yeah, well, I was in La Jolla, and then we went up to Sacramento. Not, not a beautiful place. <laughs> I didn't. I, I'm sure that people that live there that are from there find beauty in Sacramento. I don't that's find what beauty. I'm, that's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at. I take. I a, mean, I take a walk nearly every day. I live in a beautiful place. I know this. I mean, when, and then when you travel, you realize 99% of the places that you end up aren't as beautiful as where you live. <laughs> uh, because I live in a beautiful place. Because it's yours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but Hawaii's close. Hawaii's close. And people may say, oh, you don't know where to go. You know, but the thing is, like, people are like, Montana's beautiful. It's like, not as beautiful as Colorado. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know what I say about travel. The sidewalk there is the same as the sidewalk here. Is that what you say? Yeah, that's what I say. <laughs> it's concrete there and it's concrete here. But here it's home. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's that's true. But travel is important. It's it's really important to travel and good to travel to see different parts of the world. I mean, that's there to see. It's kind of like, why would you buy a beautiful picture and never look at it? Well, why would you live in this beautiful world and never go see it mm -hmm. and experience it? And, and so it's not like the other places are better than here. You should go and experience and see other places. Now, uh, I don't like to travel because it's a hassle. But after I get there, I love it. I love seeing things. It's just, it's just, the hassle of traveling is oh my goodness, uh, you got to be around all these people that are so many people are rude. But anyway, I love to being being at different places. That's why I like day trips, David. Because mm -hmm, you get to come home at the end of the day. Yeah, drive. But then, where are you at the end of the day? You're home. I love day trips. I do we feel though that going somewhere else. Uh. And then staying there, it, it sort of solidifies the memories because you're not comfortable with it. 
I think that your routine, your loop of going to sleep in your own bed, waking up, you know, going to your own coffee machine, drinking it, it becomes so you, you become habituated to it and it makes it difficult to distinguish one day from the next. So travel, I think one reason why people love travel is it just snaps you out of that loop because you're in a different place. You have a different coffee maker or you're going to a diner that you've never been before because you're in a different city to get breakfast or, you know, you're traveling roads that you don't know. When you leave your house, you've driven down that road thousands and thousands of times. But when you leave the hotel you're staying at or the Airbnb because the cops threw you out at four in the morning, uh, you're on a road that you don't really know. And I think that sort of solidifies memories of travel more than a day trip. Because you're broken yeah. from you're broken from your routine. That's what you hate most about it though. That's what I don't like. I like <laughs> I like routine. Mm-hmm. I like routine. But every once in a while it is always good to get outside your comfort zone. Uh, so that when you get back in your comfort zone, you'll appreciate it more. That's true. You know, you really, you really should go. So when, when you, when you and I traveled to to China, mm-hmm. uh, what was that? Two thousand seven, something was like it? that. That's that sounds right. Uh, you know, I go, oh man. So I had this opportunity to go to China, and I, I wanted you to come with me, and so I arranged it where you could go with me, because I didn't want to go by myself. Well, I was going with a bunch of people, but uh, I wanted you to go with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I knew it was going to be hard because I didn't like traveling. And it was hard. But after we got there, didn't we have some great experiences in China? Mm-hmm. And I remember one of my colleagues, a uh, nice guy, really nice guy. Uh, I said, yeah, I'm going to China. I've never been there. I don't like traveling. And I said, I said, have you been there? And he said, yes. He says, if you've never been there and you're going to China, it's life changing. I didn't know what he meant, but when I went there with you, with kind of like uh, took part of home with me, but I it I, I it wouldn't have been the same experience without you, David. But after I went there, it was life changing because I realized how much I love home, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful there. They do things different there, uh, but I I just love home. I just just love being home. But it was it was it was good for me to go there because there were some really good times like New Year's Day. Remember New Year's Day when midnight from 2007, 2008. Yeah. We I were do. in the we were in the penthouse in Shanghai and we were dancing and and uh, this uh, this band from, I think, Philippines or something. I don't know what they were. Mm-hmm. Are they from the Philippines. They were from the Philippines. And boom. Happy New Year. So you and I were in. In the what, twentieth, thirteenth, fifteenth floor of? Uh, I think it was like the sixty-sixth floor, or something like that. It was high. It was high. It was a eighty-eight floor skyscraper, and the club was on like the sixty-sixth floor. Yeah, it was great, great experience. See, that's a reason to travel. Uh huh. You remember that? If do you remember what you did, New Year's twenty sixteen? <laughs> you were probably at home, right? Yeah, we're just in there. Happy New Year. Let's go to bed. (laughs) So let's wrap up. Let's say a few final words about the artist. We got a little bit off. I'll say I liked the artist. If you have an hour and 45 minutes, hour and 40 minutes, I guess is the runtime. Totally worth watching. You'll be entertained. The dog is awesome. Um, Good filmmaking. I don't think it's going to change your life, but I do respect what they did with it. I liked I liked the movie too. Actually, if someone said uh, would would I recommend it? Yeah, I would recommend it. It's it's worth your time. It's entertaining. It's good. The storyline is it was excellent. They and the ending was good. I mean, I thought it was a good movie, and I love the uh, the play between you know the rising star. Uh, what was her name? Peppy Miller. Peppy Miller. Peppy Miller rising. You know, but she didn't forget how she got there uh, because uh, Valentine helped her and it was a good story mm-hmm. and it was well done and uh, and the dog was great so it had so many things that are positive and valuable and uh, yeah I'd recommend it. I thought it was a good movie I, I can see why it won Yeah, uh, because apart from 
you know, actors voting. I mean, Hollywood loves Hollywood. Apart from Hollywood loves Hollywood, I'm not in Hollywood, but I still liked it. It was very good. It was a really good movie. So that wraps up our Movie Tuesday discussion of The Artist. Movie Tuesday discussion and more. Hey, you get a lot from here, man, right? (laughs) That's right. Is there anything you'd like to add before we sign off? Hey, everybody, keep on talking. But listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye.